what makes sense to you do you find value in what you're doing do you see yourself evolving to a certain kind of an image that you are proud to be able to identify with i mean the only person that you need to answer at the end of the day is the person in the mirror everyone else is not that important to, to in my opinion and if you're comfortable with that then you have a certain kind of happiness that comes out of it there's other definitions of happiness too it can be in terms of achievement it can be in terms of um reaching a certain level in your life in which you think you're doing pretty well compared to everyone else or at least your peers i think the definition of happiness is something that's constantly evolving my name is sabri and you're listening to the now i see me podcast my guest today is kari bimai he started his career as a marine engineer then he joined the french foreign legion as a sniper After an extremely adventurous and insightful experience as a legionnaire, Carey went back to school and set his mind to understand economics, capitalism, and technology, which led him to work as a researcher and eventually to write his first book, The Blockchain Alternative: Rethinking Macroeconomic Policy and Economic Theory. It was published by Springer Apres in March 2017 and can also be found on O'Reilly's Safari platform. Since then, Carrie has spoken on many events such as TEDx, the Next Web, and many others. He shared several articles and opinions that can be found on MIT Tech Review, Wired, Harvard Business Review, World Economic Forum, and many others. He's also an associate research scientist with Cambridge, a senior fellow at the Cole Depon Business School, and a visiting lecturer at many others. Carrie is currently a chief of technology and innovation officer of Capgemini Invent. And today, he's going to take us through his wonderful and unique life experiences and share with us what he learned and how it shaped him. We also talk about the different kind of leadership he encountered during his years in the army and what we can learn from it and apply to the corporate world. Also, why we need to rethink capitalism and the importance of being a lifelong learner. So sit back and enjoy. To start the show, uh, we have our uh, traditional way to do it uh, is by asking you a question. What would you tell your 15-year-old self if you had the chance to meet him? Can I use bad language on this? You can use whatever you All want. All right. Just want to be able to make sure that I'm PC correct or incorrect in this case. Um, I think the main message that I would say to my 15-year-old self is the fact that the ability to say fuck it is really important. Um, a lot of times we get caught up, especially when we're younger, by standards, obligations, um, certain kinds of uh, requirements which we think are important for us. But in reality, they're not because the people who transmit those messages to us are not immersed in the same time or the same environment as we are. So a lot of times when you hear a good practice or a good lesson, even if it comes from your parents, it might come with the right message. uh intention but it doesn't mean it's suited for who you are or if it's suited for the time and place in which you are and this ability to turn around and just say you know what i'm going to figure it out myself i'm going to ask the right questions to myself i'm going to make something which makes sense to me um if you boil that down then the precipitate of what comes up is you you just need to say fuck it you know you got to be able to go out on a limb especially when you're younger to take a risk 
and figure out the answer for yourself. So I had a lot of ideas. I had a, a bit of a conception of the persona that I wanted to evolve into when I was 15. Um, but I put it on hold uh, because I thought I should be listening to, you know, someone else. And after listening to them for years and years together, um, the end result was I was not a very happy 22-year-old. And as a result of that, I made a dramatic change in my life. I quit everything that I was doing. I was a successful engineer, uh, traveling the world, making good money, but it wasn't giving me any happiness. So I quit it and I joined the French Foreign Legion because it made sense to me. But uh, before going to the next uh, phase of your life, like how did you define happiness at the age of 22? I think happiness is episodic. It's something that happens uh, at a certain period of time. What makes sense to you? Do you find value in what you're doing? Do you see yourself evolving to a certain kind of an image that you are proud to be able to identify with? I mean, the only person that you need to answer at the end of the day is the person in the mirror. Everyone else is not that important, to, to, in my opinion. And if you're comfortable with that, then you have a certain kind of happiness that comes out of it. There's other definitions of happiness too. It can be in terms of achievement. It can be in terms of um, reaching a certain level in your life in which you think you're doing pretty well compared to everyone else or at least your peers. I think the definition of happiness is something that's constantly evolving. The same thing that made me happy when I was 25 is definitely not the same thing that makes me happy today when I'm 36. Um, it, it changes, it evolves. It's something that's different. But if it makes sense to you, and you realize that it is a temporary state of affairs and that you need to kind of carry on building on top of it. Uh, for me, that, 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 that's the way that I look at happiness. I don't have a definition to give at, actually about it. I think you need someone with a, a much better philosophical mind than mine to be able to come up with a definition for it. Yeah, but it's interesting because the, the day you realized you're not happy enough with whatever you're doing, you made a big decision in your life. And before we talk about yeah. what you're up to today and uh, what you're working on, since it's, it's a big shift, you've had a different kind of life before. You've had a, a very interesting and very adventurous life, which is joining the French Foreign Legion. Mm. Can you tell us briefly about that? Yeah, so I, didn't, I couldn't understand myself when I was 22, 23. I mean, I was set on a path which seemed to make everyone else happy except me. Like, it didn't make sense to me. Like, why was I in this position? Why was I doing what I was doing? I didn't identify. I didn't see myself over there. To make it simple, um, I looked at my senior engineers because I was a marine engineer working on, on oil tankers, um, which was by itself quite adventurous. Uh, very hard job, by the way. People who work on ships have a very hard life. And I saw my, what they had become and I said, I, I just don't see myself doing that. I don't want to be this person when I'm 40. I don't want to be like this. I, I had higher ambitions for myself. I saw myself as being a bit more debonair, a bit more uh, interesting compared to who they were. Not that they were interesting, not interesting, but they were not the kind of interesting that I was attracted to. So that's where I decided to make a, a, a real jump and move into something different. And the decision that I made was obviously to move and join the French Legion. Uh, the reason for that is pretty simple. I come from a military family. My father was in the Air Force. We come from grand military tradition. Uh, I went to officer school when I was in India. Uh, it didn't work out too well for me in India, uh, generally. <laughs> and so 
I wanted to see the bigger part of the world. And we don't come from a family with a tremendous amount of money or resources. So I needed to figure this out myself. And I said, okay, fine. If I go and join the French Legion, then firstly, I'm not going to be sitting in the, in the garrison. I'm going to be out there. I'm going to be doing a real soldier's life. Secondly, I'm going to be learning a new language, which was quite exciting to me because I didn't speak any other European languages apart from, uh, from English, which is not really a European language, but anyways. Uh, and thirdly, because I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to find out what my limits are. Like, I grew up thinking that I was the ultimate badass. But then you go and join the French Legion and you meet the ultimate badass. And then you realize, okay, fine, maybe you should be better as, off as an economist. So the only way you can do that, find your own limits, is if you put yourself in a situation where you are subjected to tremendous amounts of stress. And that's when you start understanding how brave you are, how courageous you are, what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you don't want to be good at, and more importantly, what kind of man you want to become. There's one thing that I learned from the people that I worked with in the French Legion, especially my senior officers who are my leaders, was what kind of leader I didn't want to become, which is often more important than figuring out what kind of leader you want to become. It's interesting you're talking about leadership in the French foreign, uh, foreign legion <clears throat> and especially in an environment and a situation that's pretty much different than anything we know in a corporate life or startup life. So obviously it wasn't easy. It wasn't uh, an easy job. It wasn't a very quiet uh, job. Mm -hmm. So how do you find the balance between being on the field and fighting and thinking about what kind of leader you want to do, you want to be. I think it's something that emerges. It's not something that you just feel like, okay, fine, yes, no, pro, con, and you come up with a list and you say, okay, fine, this is what it is. Um, you have to be honest with yourself. I joined the French Legion and I wanted to go to the second rep, which is the second Régiment étranger des Parachutistes, uh, the, the Parachutist Regiment, Airborne. Um, because I knew that that's where all the action men were. That's where, if, if there's any mission that happens with the French Foreign Legion, the first people who are sent are the airborne troops. Um, and within that, I wanted to be a sniper. And that was my objective, and I had achieved it. I was a sniper for, for four years, um, and I was deployed in you know multiple uh, engagements. And you start realizing different things about leadership. There are leaders who are very good in peacetime, and then there are leaders who are very good in... In, in, in real action and normally they're not the same people there's very few people who are good leaders throughout you'll have some people who are amazing couch leaders these people are good when it's peacetime and there's a lot of people who can be renegades so if you have a scale of renegades you will find people who are on the extreme right of the renegade scale who are terrible when it's at peacetime They're the ones who are constantly getting into trouble, massive alcoholics, um, just like the ultimate bad boy. And then you put them in a, in a stressful situation uh, in which there is actual combat and bullets flying around you, and they will be calm as a cucumber. Whereas the other person who's a very great garrison leader, uh, you can't depend on them in, in times of hostility. They, they crunch up, they don't know how to, to react. So once you have the ability to see two extremes of leadership. They're both leaders, by the way, but it's just in two different contexts. Your ability to oscillate between the two of them and say, okay, fine, which, 
variables or which uh, qualities am I going to cherry pick from these examples that I've seen and how does that relate to who I am? It's based on these inputs that you create the future persona of yourself. And you're not doing it in order to become like a leader or something like that. You're just doing it because this is the way that you would you, you find yourself more comfortable. You, you, you're comfortable with the image that, that, that's created in front of you. And the rest is just executing to achieve that. And it doesn't matter whether it's in the military or if it's in corporate life. I think it's the same situation. It's the same message. We're seeing this right now. We have had leaders who have been in, in corporate uh, com- circumstances, in corporate situations, who are doing a great job. And now that we've got COVID that's come in, you find the leaders who know what to do or they take action and they know how to run the team. And there's others who are, you know, losing their shit. They're, they're like headless chickens over there. So, uh, yeah. Definitely. But uh, what I want to know more is uh, you obviously gave a great analogy, actually, about leadership between the corporate life and the army life. Mm-hmm. But I guess there were more learnings than just the leadership aspect. Uh, being on the field, uh, being a sniper, mm-hmm. being deployed in countries uh, extremely dangerous by times. What what did you learn from that? Like, what what did you learn being uh, a sniper in terms of responsibilities, in in terms of uh, brotherhood, in terms of uh, work um, work discipline? Uh, what were the major learning you came out from? So that, that's a very wide question. You'll need to be a bit more specific. I'll try to kind of answer all the points that you enumerated. The first thing that people need to understand about a sniper's job is it's not what you see in Hollywood, right? It's not uh, uh, American sniper or something like that. 95% of a sniper's job is just observation. Okay, we are the, the military intelligence unit. Uh, to quote an oxymoron, military intelligence. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you, you're sent before everyone else with your small team because you are invisible and you observe a certain sector and you give the necessary information based on which a strategy of attack is built or a strategy of defense is built. So your job is very, um, very passive to a certain extent. You have to observe, you have to document, you have to be able to figure out what's going on. And maybe sometimes someone tells you to engage an enemy, but it's very rare. That's that's very, very rare because of the rules of engagement, um, mostly by uh, NATO countries. Um, In the process of observing, I realized that there's a lot of nuance that comes up um, in in any kind of a, a military situation. Because when you're observing an environment, you learn how to massage nuances. If you see people behaving a certain kind of a way because you're observing them for hours at an end, you realize that they're very regular. They're just like you. They might be called Mujahideen or Taliban or insurgent. But at the end of the day, they do the same thing as you. They wake up in the morning, they go take a big dump, and then they have breakfast, and you know they have certain kinds of regular lifestyles as well. And that humanizing aspect makes you understand that there's another story behind what's being fed to you. So I think one of the main things that happened to me in terms of being able to, or having past time in the military was to realize that the emperor sometimes has no clothes on. You know, we know that story about the child who says the emperor has no clothes on. Everyone knows that the emperor is naked, but no one says it except the child because it's a child says, oh, he's naked. And I've used that kind of analogy in any circumstance that I have today. When I look at data or a strategy that's being proposed by a startup or a strategy that we are trying to execute, I'm like, what am I missing over here? 
what are the nuances that I need to massage? Because that's where you really find the true value of it. So it's not a one-to-one kind of transfer, but it's definitely affected my mindset. Um, The second thing that I've realized through the military was the tremendous amount of teamwork that's required. You can have the best strategy, but you've got no one to to execute it. You're not going to do anything. You can have the best plans. You can have the best strategy, but um, it depends on how the, the terrain is. So there's a lot of times when we say this in, in, we used to say this in the French Legion, we used to say, say le terrain qui commande. Because you can come there and say like, okay, fine, this is what we're going to be able to do. This is how we're going to attack a certain kind of, uh, uh, you know, place or whatever. But then you come down over there and you realize that it's rained the night before and that the ground is all mushy and that you can't run at the same place that you want or you can't use your armored vehicles because they'll get stuck if you put them in the mud over there. Now what do you do? That aspect of adaptability is super important. And I think this is something which has been very useful in my current job because I work in innovation strategy. And strategy is all about being able to figure out how you're going to do something. Uh, But if you're unable to understand the landscape in which you are, then it doesn't matter how great your business plan is, you can't execute. And a lot of times um, we constantly have to tell not just our clients, but even our teams that do not be married to the strategy. Yes, you have come up, you have looked at all the information, you have come up with a, a very comprehensive plan as to how you're going to be able to address this market and engage these clients and you know create this kind of a growth profile, et cetera, et cetera. But then there are other aspects which you haven't taken into consideration. So how do you adapt to the landscape? Have you understood the landscape properly or not? And being able to visualize that is very important. Because both these jobs dealt with the same thing, which is dealing with ambiguity. So the better you understand ambiguity, the easier it becomes for you to be able to say, I'm going to lean into the ambiguity. I'm going to stand over here and be a spectator. I'm going to say, okay, fine, I have a strategy. I think it's a good one, but it's not really working out the way that I thought it would for X, Y, Z reason. Why is that happening? Because I don't understand the landscape. Let me understand the landscape. What are the nuances I need to massage to figure it out better? And now I can come back to my strategy, which is a reference point, right? It's not yeah, a, it's yes. not set in stone. And you say, okay, fine. I'm not starting with zero. I had some kind of a plan. It's been modified a little bit. And now I'm going to change it and I'm going to address it bit by bit by bit by bit by bit and see what comes out of it. So that ability to execute in small steps and integrate that feedback into your overarching strategy is something that's very important. And it's hard to to convince people who you work with and even clients sometimes to get towards that mindset, mostly because of the fact that people don't want to sound stupid. So they say, I came up with this phenomenal strategic plan. And they're like, there's nothing wrong with the plan. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's all about execution. It's, it's all about execution, right? And second of all, you don't know all the answers. I mean, if you knew all the answers, you wouldn't be working in innovation strategy. You, you'd be... Nostradamus, and you'd have invested money in Google before Google became Google, and you know you'd be sitting and living the good life. Yeah, definitely. So. Actually, like hearing you talking about the lessons learned made me think about uh, a story you told me about the first time you were thinking about quitting the for uh, the French Foreign Legion. Mm-hmm. Could you remind me and remind us all our and our, all our listeners? Uh, what was the f- the first sign you've had to think about quitting the army? Oh, I, I thought about it so many times. I mean, if anyone <clears throat> thinks that it's easy to spend five years in the French Legion 
especially when I was there. I think it's changed quite a bit. I quit a long time back. I left in 2011, so I'm pretty sure it's a different animal today. Uh, but when I was over there, um, it was very, very rustic. It was very, very old school. It was a hard life, and I was the only, I was the only Indian guy in the second rep, which is known for its racism. I was the only brown guy. Um, yeah, there was a lot of times in which uh, I felt, what am I doing over here? And I was a trained engineer. So it wasn't like I didn't have another option or something like that. I came there because I was some kind of a, you know, foolish romantic. Um, and I said, oh, I want to do this. <laughs> um, but I think one of the first times that I felt that I wanted to leave the, the military, I, I think it was the main reason I wanted to leave the military multiple times, was because of the bullshit and the pageantry. You know, if you're in peacetime and you need to take all these young men who are obviously very aggressive and by nature and full of testosterone um, and you don't have a place to deploy them, they're going to get into trouble. So the way that the military counteracts it is by enforcing discipline or forcing it down your throat. Discipline for me is not you wake up in the morning and make your bed because your sergeant's screaming at you. Discipline for me is you wake up in the morning and you make your bed because you realize that way, in case something happens, you know exactly where all your material is. You can pack up your stuff and you can be ready for action in a second. You can do it really, really quickly. Uh, unfortunately, that's not what is taught to people in the military. So a lot of people say, yeah, military guys, uh, you, you guys learn discipline. Have you seen the number of veterans who are on drugs right now? Have you seen the number of people who are addicts or alcoholics after they leave the military? Where did all that discipline go? Yeah. It went away because of the fact it was never learned. It was forced on their throats. So the moment you leave it and you have never, you've never received the understanding of the context of what the discipline is supposed to do, because discipline is supposed to give you freedom at the end of the day, if you, if you boil it down, um, you will execute because someone tells you to do it because it's easier than you know, having a painful experience but it doesn't get inculcated into you. Yeah, since we're not convinced of why we're doing it. 100. Why, why it's 100, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, very, it's very interesting, actually. It, it makes me rethink about the golden circle and start by the why <laughs> instead of the how and the what. So, yeah, it's, it applies as well to, to the discipline. You were right about the veterans, especially. Yeah. We see it in the US. Uh, yeah, you see it everywhere. Yeah, I mean, you see it everywhere, yeah. but yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And basically, what happened with you is uh, after five, six years, you, you made your decision to leave and you started thinking about your next step. I made the decision to leave well before that. Um, the French Legion has got a massive dropout rate. I mean, around 90% of the people who join the French Legion after they've gone through the selection process, because the selection process by itself is very difficult. I think the statistic is one out of every 200 people who apply get selected because it's a hard life. It's not an easy life. Five years in, in seclusion and, you know, away from everyone. And at least when I was there, we didn't have any internet access. Uh, it's not an easy life to do. But at the end of spending that five years, you know, you have the option of either continuing or staying back over there. When I went in, I went with a very firm idea that I will do my five years because I've given my word that I will do the five years and the first contract in the Legion is five years. But after it's done, I'm done. Like, I'm going to figure out something else. I was never there to have a career in the military. I was there in order to have an experience and hopefully live through it. Um, so 
by the time I think I was around, it, it takes a while for you to figure out your position and stance on it because I didn't even speak the language. So just that, it took me like a, a year to figure out what the hell these guys were saying, you know, and be able to respond as well. It takes time to learn a new language. And after around two and a half years, when I was just about becoming a corporal, um, I'd made up my mind that I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave, but I didn't know what I was going to get into after that. I think the real realization of what the next step was happened when I was in Afghanistan. I spent eight months almost over there. Our contract was supposed to be for six and a half or seven months, but it got extended as it does. Um, and after eight months in Afghanistan, one of the things that I realized by being immersed in a massive uh, theater of war was that every war has got a gigantic question of money attached to it. And uh, I found that if you look at conflict, conflict is very interesting because if you look at conflict, you realize that there's every war has got what I call the, uh, a pyramid of three C's. So I call it like it's a triangle. On one side, you have conflict. So let's say conflict is at the top of the triangle, right? So that's like the apex of the triangle. And the other two um, ends of the triangle are what I like to say is conviction and capitalism. And the way that this connection works is conflict is essentially an output. People get into an argument or they start fighting with each other because of the fact that they have a difference in opinion, which is their conviction. So that leads mm -hmm. me to the second C. You are convinced about something, whether it's religion or human rights or whatever it is, and I don't agree with you. And for some reason, we've reached the point in our lives in which we say the only way that I can sort this out is if I get into a fist fight with you or I get a gun or a knife or whatever. So you have the output of a difference in conviction leads to conflict. But it turns out that, convic uh, that conviction is a very expensive business. If you are 100% convinced about something and you want to force this point down my throat, whether I like it or not, you have to use some energy. And energy comes at a cost, and that cost in today's world is capitalism. So what I found was when two countries were getting into war for whatever reason that they had a difference in, in their convictions, they needed to uh, you know, rally their resources together. And I understood conviction, in, especially in Afghanistan, was a lot based on religion. I mean, there's other factors to it as well, but religion was definitely a big factor. You had the a Muslim community fighting and you know, Anglo-Saxon community, which had a different kind of a perspective. Conflict was obviously an output. So the third part of this triangle was capitalism. And being an ex-engineer, I had no understanding of economics. I had no understanding of capitalism. So that started irritating me because it felt like I understood the other two elements of the equation, but I didn't understand the third element. And as a result of that, I said, okay, fine, I'm going to try and figure it out. Um, the way that I did this was I actually contacted someone in my family and asked them if they could send me a book on economics. And they sent me probably the best book on economics, which is Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. I'll never forget that book because it had such a transformational effect on my life. And um, they sent me two volumes. The first was the basic and the next one was advanced. And in my tent, because I was in a cop, and I'll explain what a cop is if you want, uh, combat operating post, uh, which was literally like very close to the front lines. Um, we had no electricity or anything. And I was over there, you know, in my tent, uh, reading this 
these books with my you know headlamp and as i read the book and figured out how economics worked in this machine it was very intricate and very interconnected it seemed like a puzzle that you could kind of unravel but the ramifications of its actions led to the possibility of war and led to people who had a difference in conviction to do conflict so i said okay fine this is my reality i need to understand this capitalism thing because i don't know about it and bit by bit i started reading more and more about economics and got very very interested in it and by the time i came back from afghanistan i had made the firm decision that once i leave i'm going to go to a business school and learn about this properly because i didn't even know what i was going to do after that but i knew that this was an itch that needed to be scratched and so yeah i collected all my savings and uh, pulled them all into going to chemical management where i got accepted which is the only school i applied to actually because mm-hmm. i didn't know anything about business schools <laughs> uh and uh, yeah that led to the next chapter in my life which is actually a very exciting chapter and uh, very inspiring as well uh, because i had the chance to be part of some of uh, yeah. some parts of this chapter uh, uh you're being modest now you not you didn't get a chance to be part of it you actually wrote one or two of those chapters uh, i mean I, i'm i did my best to help and to to witness especially because i'm allergic to bullshit subreddits so i know i know but like i mean my point is i i was uh, i remember uh, our first meeting where we met in jardin des tuileries yes and, uh, exactly it's a rue de rivoli yeah absolutely and uh, i i found that the switch you made was was fascinating uh, for anyone i, I guess Uh, switching from the French Foreign Legion to going back to school, which I guess was hard to accept for uh, from a Negro perspective. Yeah. For a month, I I wore full sleeve shirts because I didn't want anyone in business school to see that I had tattoos on my arms. <laughs> <laughs> And so yeah, I can I can imagine it was it was hard to go back to school. Probably you were older than average people mm-hmm. there, and especially the courage to learn to learn from scratch because basically you. you decided that you want to become an expert on a certain topic and you're going to learn for that you're going to take classes and then you want to understand better and even more teach people how to create a better yeah i mean um, all those society. things were evolutionary i mean i didn't get into it with those objectives i mean those objectives kind of like uh, emerged over time um which comes back to what you asked me you know in the very beginning about uh, how it is that you know, I moved into it what my definition of leadership is it's something that emerged um i was interested in capitalism i wanted to figure it out i wanted to understand economics i wanted to be able to pick up the financial times and read it end to end and it should make sense to me because i didn't understand this stuff before and i remember picking up a copy of the financial times in 2011 when i did my masters and reading it and didn't have a clue as to what the hell these people are talking about uh, not that i understand completely today but it makes a lot more sense for sure so that was kind of like my main objective but oh the poor process of trying to educate myself and you know i think the main skill that everyone needs to be really hunkering down on today is autodidactism that is the ability to self learn Uh, that by the way is what the point of an education is and this is not my words this is what plato said you know the 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 role of education is to train a person to be able to self learn 
So I went in it with, with, with very this very naive kind of outlook. I remember the, when you, you know you have these orientation days, hmm. like the first day when you come to, they put you all inside this huge I ne- room. I never believed in this book. Yeah, but they put you all in this yeah. huge room and you're all, all over there and they're like, you are the next 80 people who are going to be doing your masters in whatever program you're doing. And they're like, why don't we play a game and you guys kind of introduce yourself to each other and say what it is that you're looking for by joining this master's program. Like, why, 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 why are you doing this? Because it's very expensive, these programs, yeah. you know. I, uh, different conversation on the unit accounting and economics of it. Um, but when they asked these questions, I had a lot of people who, you know, everyone else was there, who was standing up and saying, well, I want to create a career in finance or marketing or whatever it is that they wanted to do. And that's why they had, you know, signed up for this master's program and gone through the selection process, etc., etc. I had no clue. I didn't know what HR really was. I didn't know what uh, marketing, like what does a marketer actually do? I had an even lesser of an idea as to what finance uh, roles involved. And so when my turn came up, I just stood up and said the truth, which was, I'm here to learn. That's the only reason I'm here. I think it's, I'm, I'm, I'm so interested in, in this aspect that I'm willing to take my entire life savings, which is all that I made as a, you know, as a junior military person, which is not a lot of money. Um, but whatever I'd saved up, I was willing to pay all of that over here because I wanted to learn this and I wanted to learn it properly, not just by myself. And so that was really the motivation for me more than anything else. And then everything that happened after that was a consequence of this continuous kind of iterative autodidactic system, which still hasn't ended, by the way, still going on. That, that's uh, that's what I was gonna uh, say, because, uh, so when we met uh, almost five years ago, actually. No, less than that, less not than that old. No, no, we, we met, met in 2015, 2016, six, we met 2016. End of 16, actually. Yeah, 2016. Yeah, almost so, 17, yeah. yeah. So uh, basically, you were coming out of the French Foreign Legion, went back to school, worked for Michelin. Yeah, I worked at uh, yeah. And you were, you just published your first book about rethinking. I was writing it. You were writing it, yeah, true. You were writing it. So I, I got to know Carrie as a blockchain expert. You were like mm-hmm. so passionate about it. I remember all the people you introduced me to and mm-hmm. uh, I even got into cryptocurrency uh, because of you. I and apologize then, for that. <laughs> yeah, no worry. I saw that I made some money. <laughs> and then a uh, couple of years later, uh, here you are with a new version mm-hmm. of you, uh, whether um, physically, mentally, but also the subject you're working on. Like I've seen you going through different transformations. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, you're not really far from what you were doing, mm-hmm. but still now you're purely into innovation, mm-hmm. strategy, Uh, you're working from a, for a high-class company, mm-hmm. uh, Fahrenheit to 212. Which is part of Capgemini. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, by the way, we say hi to Jason, Liam, and all Jason, the teams. Jason, Liam, um, sure. And Laura uh, and as well, Laura mm-hmm. Menon. And basically, you, you are, it's like you are a big fan of change and uh, ad- uh, adaptability and transformation. So why are you always in constant research of new Uh, journeys or new uh, experiences or is just a continuity for you? I don't do this just because it's something to do. Um, 
I've developed certain habits, which I think are good habits to have, like the habit of, you know, waking up and reading um, and learning from people who are smarter than you. And then the value of authenticity, which is super important to me. Like I don't want to have the best opinion on any subject, but I want to have my own opinion. And, and that I, you have, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, and I always question my opinion as well. So for me, why did I get into blockchain? Because once I went to my master's program and started getting an understanding of economics and everything else, and you know, master's programs are quite short and they're, they're very um, career focused, mm-hmm. right? They're the, most people who do a master's is because of the fact that there is a job that they want to get or they want to be able to achieve a certain rank in a company. And that's why they spend, you know, 60, 70, $80,000, for example, on euros or whatever it is um, to get like an MBA. The problem is a lot of the time that these educations are outdated. The curriculum is already outdated compared to the market. And that's a different conversation. I won't get into it. But for me, once I finished this master's program and I had technically you know, a degree, which thanks to which I was able to get a job in in Michelin and do a lot of work over there. Um, I found it still quite unsatisfactory. Like I said, okay, fine, I've got this fancy degree now and it's got me a job, but it hasn't answered the question, which was, why is this connection between capitalism and conflict and conviction? Like, how does this mechanism actually work? Not at some philosophical high level you know 10,000 point of view uh-huh. 10,000 feet point of view I wanted to know the nitty gritty of it and so I started really doing a lot of my own private understanding so I would do my job every day and I'd come back I was an intern and then after I became an intern I got a, a, a regular job within the company um, but every evening I was coming back and I was still reading books on economics and realized bit by bit that the problem that we have with economics is there's multiple ones. I mean, the macroeconomic perspective is related to debt. But more importantly, I started getting more and more influence or understanding about financial policy and monetary policy and realized that um, why do people make these kind of decisions when they're making policy, right? Monetary policy. Why do you believe in controlling the inflation, for example, at 2%. What is the reason behind that? And the more and more I tried understanding this, I realized that the fundamental reason for which economics is governed the way that it is today is because it's based on outdated ideas. Two ideas in in particular, which is the efficient markets hypothesis and the rational expectations theory. Now, efficient markets hypothesis, it's in in the title, it's a hypothesis. Why would you use a hypothesis to come up with the, <laughs> with the monetary policy? You'd think you should be able to go forward with the theory. So that brings me to the second point, which is RET, which is rational expectations theory, in which they said that every human being is a rational person and they will make rational decisions. But if rationality is the only way that we make decisions, why do people smoke? Or why do we believe in charity? You know, Philanthropy doesn't have any role to play in, in, in a rational world per se. As a result of that, I realized that we need to think about it in a different way, that we are living in an economy that is probably the natural state of affairs is not equilibrium, but entropy. And that got me into complexity theory and complexity economics. And I was very frustrated with the way that we looked at economics. And I felt that the theories that were being used in order to govern our lives were outdated and needed an update. And that's when I came across Bitcoin. 
And I said, oh, okay, here's something that's a bit different. And it introduced me to Austrian economics and this and that. And I just, you know, read book after book, read paper after paper. And then I read blockchain, the white paper, the first time, I think it was in 2012, early 2012, yeah, not even 2011. And... It irritated me because when I read that paper, I couldn't understand half of it. And it took me, I think, around three or four weeks to read that paper. But when I say it took me three or four weeks, it would be, I'd come back from work and then I'd sit down and read a paragraph. And they were making references to encryption, like, uh, you know, SHA-256, for example. And I didn't know what that was. So I'd Wikipedia the crap out of it, figure it out. And that would take me like a while then come back to the white paper and be like, where was I again? And figure it out. So it took me like four weeks to read the, that white paper, which is, by the way, it's like eight pages. It's not really <laughs> that big. And at the end of it, it showed me an alternative. It showed me a different way to think about it. And I tried to mix complexity theory and complexity economics in particular with an infrastructure that was based on blockchain to find a new kind of an understanding of economics, which wasn't based on this equilibrium nonsense that we're being fed to till today, which I think is a travesty. And that's what got me into education and, you know, starting to give courses and everything else. Because once I figured this out, I didn't know if I was right. So I said, okay, fine, how do I find out if I'm right? I wrote what I thought was right and discovered the joy of writing, which is definitely my drug of preference. Um, and once I wrote something, I put it out there, got feedback from people. So everyone who's read my work, thank you so much for, for that. <laughs> uh, and they told me, okay, fine, you know, you're not, you're not totally full of bullshit. I mean, there's a few areas where you definitely don't know what the fuck you're talking about, but it's, it's, it's good. This is good work. You it's a good beginning. Yeah, it's a good. It's good. You should think about doing it more, and that got me into giving my first TEDx at uh, at uh, Clermont, uh, and that's how we actually got connected because yeah. the guy who organized that was a thanks friend to, of Lionel. to Lionel. Hi, Lionel. Yeah, anyway, how you going, Lionel? <laughs> uh, we love you. Um, and um, after that, I just realized. I said, "Why aren't more people talking about this? Why is everyone so complacent? Why do you just look?" at reality and accept it for what it is, right? What, what happened to you? Did your balls fall off? Huh? Why can't you question what's in front of you? I mean, if you don't understand this economic stuff, trust me, it's super complicated. It's, it truly is. I sacrificed a social life for years in order to figure it out. And once I'd done that, I just said, you know what? I don't mind if someone comes up to me and says that you don't know what you're talking about. But let's have that conversation. Let's figure it out. And that's what got me into, into teaching. It, was, it wasn't because I wanted to teach. I was just pissed off that no one else was teaching this stuff. And it led to my first blockchain uh, interventions at Grenoble, which happened after I quit my job at Michelin. I, I believed in it so much that I quit my job in Michelin uh, and moved to Grenoble and became a research, researcher, took a massive pay cut you know i went from doing okay to poor <laughs> essentially um and gave pro bono classes and just wanted to get that message out because i was just frustrated that i felt very alone that i was the only person who was doing it and the proof is in the pudding like you know recently i put a post up on linkedin in which i mentioned three of my ex-students um michelle roche and uh, arvind Ravi Ravi Chandran, and uh, Ellie, 
uh, and all three of them, were my students, I think they were all students at the same time. I'm not sure. I don't know if they're the same class or whatever. But all three of them have been using blockchain in their own way. Michelle has been, you know, he ran the, the blockchain center at, at Cambridge. And he's gone on to create his own company based on it. And he's definitely, he knows the subject of blockchain a lot better than I do. So, you know, the students become the master to a certain extent. And uh, he's very erudite. So I'm very, I'm very, very happy that I could play a small role in his, in his trajectory. Uh, Arvind mixed those two passions together. He had a passion in space. I actually wrote his letter of reference to the ISU, the International uh, Space University. I'm not even sure if Arvind knew about the ISU before I mentioned it to him. Um, but again, just like a, a brilliant, sparkling mind and so eager to learn. And so, yeah, he's been, I think he got interviewed recently at space.com. He did an internship at NASA and he's mixing blockchain and space. And then Ellie's been doing it in strategy consulting and, you know, he's been freelancing and doing it with a lot of big... Uh, private equity firms and stuff like that. So I feel like yeah. you're being hopeful talking about your students and uh, the education role in, in this change that we can implement. Uh, are you really hopeful? Do you see changes happening since you got into the subject? Yeah, I mean, like, don't, don't forget that technology kind of evolves in certain cycles. So you've got these kind of like S-curves or whatever, right? So when I jumped into the blockchain game, it was like at the very initial uh, arenas but every technology if you look empirically and you can read like Carlota Perez or you know um, Kevin Kelly as well he's got a phenomenal understanding of how technology evolves you see that it goes through a certain kind of a cycle and there's a reason for which it goes through that which is technical as well I mean technology mm -hmm. has to evolve in a certain way there's something which is known as the combinatorial theory of uh, a technological evolution which helps you understand that technology evolves by mixing bits and pieces of other technologies together and then, then you know it's based through that they create a new kind of technology so you've got these kind of s-curves that get created behind it but then there's also the question about user adoption and etc 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 so you're going through these kind of technological curves and even if it's being able to do something well it's, it doesn't mean that it's going to be diffused through society in a very good way what's important is um People take the time to learn about it, you know, uh, early adopter, whatever you want to call it. And secondly, uh, that they they use this new insight to change the way that they're looking at the situation in which they're immersed in. So it comes back to my, my military analogy, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Understand the landscape. And am I hopeful about it? I don't know what you mean by hopeful. I'm hopeful about the students. I think a, a student who is a bit switched on, who's a bit ambitious... Because there's a lot of people who come to a, a, do an MBA or whatever because they just want to be able to do a job. And that's fine. In any company, you've, you'll find people who are rocks and rock stars. And you probably want to have around maybe a 50-50 balance between the two of them. The rock stars are the people who, you know, they're trailblazers. They want to be able to try new stuff, whatever it is. They want to experiment. And then you've got the rocks who are not that ambitious, but like to do their job properly because for them what happens after work is very important right. so go home take care of their family whatever it is and i think that's great there's no problem about it to each his own i have hope in those people because they will they they have an objective they have an ambition and they're using the education in order to achieve that and that's great 
my problem is with the educational institutions welcome to the club yeah because if you tell me i'll give you a personal example 2016 uh, 15 actually yeah i gave my first blockchain course at grenoble i had to convince people i did this pro bono no one paid me for it 3 hour lectures which means that i had to read for 30 hours and prepare material in order to make a 3 hour lecture i had to beg and plead and say can you please give me the time to give this course to someone and we'll make it optional no one has to come for it i'll just keep i'll put a flyer on the on the on the bulletin board if you want to sign up you can come for this it's at this this time why because the people who were responsible for the curriculum didn't think that this was an important subject it was not part of the curriculum and even today it takes 3 years to change a curriculum why because the system has been built in which you have to go through multiple evaluation processes you have to take so much time to change even a simple aspect out of a curriculum meanwhile the market is going on at a totally different rate so business schools in general i can't talk about the natural sciences but i can't i can't talk about business schools uh and i've been disinvited from giving a lot of um, classes in business schools because of this perspective everyone who goes to a business school today needs to understand that they are spending 40 50 60 70 80 grand whatever it is for a, a curriculum that is outdated even before they start their degree and so you have no choice but to be autodidactic if you are not getting into the autodidactic business what the hell are you doing whether you're a rock or a rock star yeah. so you lead me actually to uh, my next question and uh you 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 spoke about uh, the autodidactic system or process mm-hmm. you spoke a lot of, about the books you've read um the lessons you've learned how did you implement this discipline of uh, uh having the motivation to read for hours of uh, having the motivation to learn about new subject and to impose on yourself because it's funny you you told me that uh, in the army they imposed on they imposed that on you and that's mm-hmm. not discipline mm-hmm. but how did you find your own discipline of reading and we know like we know that it's really hard like every year we do our resolutions and no one fucking stick to them mm. because it's really hard to stick to that mm. how did you manage to go from the army to blockchain to innovation and i'm sure you're into new project and new yeah. things so how how did you implement that i don't have an, a technique or a, a trick to give anyone this is just based on pure curiosity like i have an an ego issue with something if i can't understand it i can if you that. tell me something that i don't understand then i will disappear into the toilet for 20 minutes and i will google the crap out of it and i will try to figure out what it is that this person is saying because how dare he know something that i don't know right that's kind of just the way that i am um and it's it's kind of like an addiction like a drug you could say uh, i have the advantage that i don't sleep a lot so i wake up you know pretty early i sleep like 5 hours a day that's just the way my my system works i don't wake up after 5 hours totally exhausted i'm if anything a bit too uh, energetic in the morning um and you know normally i used to when i was younger i'd i'd definitely go hit the gym but we live in in france and apparently these people don't know that you can open a gym before 7 o'clock in the morning <laughs> um, and that's another conversation <laughs> we we decided to live in this country and there's certain advantages uh, of living in this country uh, especially the women 
<laughs> but um, yeah, I I used to, I wake up early in the morning and um, I just started curating the kind of stuff that I wanted to read because these were the subjects that interested me, whether it was about how blockchain worked or what was going on in the financial markets or what are the new developments in quantum computing or how video games are going to become more and more mainstream. Uh, I just woke up in the morning and felt that this was the day that I wanted to start my day. It wasn't forced. It was not anything else. It's also because of the fact that I'm a single man, so I don't have a, a, a other distractions um, that kind of like take my time away from it because you got kids, then it's, it's not that easy. And then at the same time, it's also because of the fact that I'm not the only person who has these curiosities. There's other people, which is why we've seen the rise of podcasts and, you know, all these people producing so much interesting content. I mean, between 2012 to today, the quality of the content is just so much better. And, and you know, because the public is just so much more attuned to sensing bullshit. And if, they, if it's bad content, then people are just not going to bother about it anymore. Well, so absolutely. it's all these things that kind of like, I, I would say that I've co-evolved with what's going on around me. Because you need to understand your environment, right? And do you think we can develop curiosity, actually? Uh, yeah, if you have an idea as to what kind of persona you want to become. So, I, I mean, I do this. So, I'm a lead mentor at, at Fahrenheit, my company, um, because we hire a lot of people who are, you know, in their mid-20s, maybe even their late-20s. Yeah. But people who are in the mid and late-20s, there's a lot of people who have got no fucking clue what they want to do, right? They, 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 they're floating around like a fart in the wind. Um, and so based on my own experiences and because of the fact that I've had to kind of like grow up faster than what I wanted to, uh, I try to provide some kind of closure to them. And I do a persona exercise with them in which I tell them, you know, project yourself into the future, three months, six months, maybe a year from now, not more than that, because anyone who thinks that they can predict what's going to happen in you know three years or something is just full of shit. If I meet someone who says like three years from now, I'm just like, that's the end of that conversation right there. I mean, I, I don't have time to deal with this, this kind of nonsense. Um, but project yourself in the future. And how does this person look? How do they smell? What are they wearing? Like, what are they talking about? What are they doing every day? Can you tell me your future persona a few years from now? And if you want to do it, do it all the way till, you know, if you're 25 right now, Tell me how you see yourself when you're 50. It doesn't really matter how far you want to go into your own mind. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, you know, if, you, if this is your own castle in the sky, so if you, as long as you have that thing. What it does, does is it gives you an image. And visualization is very important because when you can visualize something, then you can make a narrative based on it. And then if you have a narrative, you can make a business model or any kind of a model behind it, right? So that's the way that works. So I, I tried to get that. So visualization, narrative and business model. 100%. 100%. And it works in that order. And everything that I do, I work with a lot of data. My Always my objective is visualize the data. Visualize okay. the data because then I can, that's what we're doing. What What is my business? My business is in uh, the ambiguity reduction business. I work in innovation strategy. I am immersed in ambiguity day to day. And based on my life experiences, I am... I have the fortitude to deal with it. Not that I'm comfortable with ambiguity. I still have my own issues with ambiguity like anyone else. Mm. But I'm okay with it. I'll figure it out. And that's, you know, we were talking about this before we started this conversation about courage and bravery. 
So I tell people to kind of visualize this persona who they are. And then I tell them to say, why have you created this persona? And that re- leads to the fact that they have certain heroes. They have certain heroes in their life. You know, they've seen this woman who's become a phenomenal TED Talk speaker. And they want to be a little bit like her. Or they've seen this other person who was able to create a business from nothing. And they want to be a little bit like him. They want his resourcefulness. They want her intelligence. And then they want someone else's, like an Instagram follower that they follow. And they say, I wish I had, you know, that kind of um, um, uh, debonair kind of attitude or whatever. So I say, okay, fine. It's good to get inspired by other people. You don't have to become that person. If you try to copy paste that, which is a mistake that a lot of young people do. And they start to copy paste them. Don't do that. Figure out these personas. Understand why it is that you want to have these aspects integrated into your own persona and then tell me what this image is and you say okay fine this is the image that i have of myself you know a year from now two years from now whatever it is these are the people who i'm looking at who are influencing it and you come back to who you are and what that allows you to do is it makes you understand what you need to learn in order to get there so you build your own curriculum after that you say okay fine i need to be like this person, and this person was created his own company by himself. What did he have to do in order to do that? Oh, he needed to know about business models. He needed to understand about this technology, whatever it is. I don't understand this technology. Okay, so I'm going to do that now. I'm going to strain myself about AI. I'm going to get into a machine learning MOOC. I'm going to go to, you know, get a nano degree in Udacity or whatever it is. I'm going to learn about that stuff. And once I do that, then I can start building my own product. Now I want to build my own product, but I want to build it in this way. And I've seen this company and this CEO, this product developer guy. I like the way that he builds products. I'm going to learn about product development after that. And then I'm going to market it. And I love the way that this person markets their products. I'm going to steal a little bit off that. It's fine to do that, right? Yeah. There's this permutation combination from different aspects is super important. And if you can do that, then... You know, you you learn about these things and you can figure it out. And by the way, in the process of doing this, you might drop something. You might say, eh, I think I I thought I wanted to get into machine learning, but it's not really for me. That's fine. Because the strategy is adaptable. It's all about adaptability. So you learn something else. So it's very interesting. So your exercise is about visualizing and creating your future persona. But also I know that uh, you're a big fan of connecting the dots and you, mm. you even tell me that you love like you're really strong at connecting the dots yeah and i will recall um steve jobs may he rest in peace mm. he said we can only connect the dots looking backward yeah but not looking forward so i want to get back to you uh and ask you about ask you to look for backward mm-hmm. and tell me among all the, like this like besides the learning and the books and the people and all of that what were the failures and the regrets, if I can say, that, that made you who you are today, that, that contributed to that persona of Carrie? <laughs> so you want one, the ones from this week? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's just like so many of them. I mean, Like one say, regret that you believe that shaped you as a person? My book. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I feel that that was a total failure. 
the way that it was written, the way that it was published, everything about it. Um, don't get me wrong, it, I, I've still made some money out of it. I mean, I just got a check at the beginning of the month, you know, and in this Corona time, everyone's kind of like a bit angsty about where you're going to get money from. I'm okay, I, I, I got my job, but uh, I, did, I did get a check, and it was a good check, actually, from the, the publishing company, but... Um, it was so immature the way that I was that I wrote the book and my the level of thinking. But I I, I just did it by myself. And uh, 2017, I got a, 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 an email from Springer, the the publishing company, in which they said that hey, uh, we've been reading a couple of your papers and articles because I was published on Wired and our Business Review on Blockchain, and they're like hey, you know we. We read a few of your things and we'd like to know if you'd be interested in, in publishing an article with Springer, which is, you know, a pretty good deal. And the person, the editor who called me up, he said, what would you like to write about? And I told them about, why don't we think about blockchain meets macroeconomics, uh, which is, by the way, what's happening today with uh, central bank uh, digital currencies, which is being explored in Singapore, China. Um, Sweden and multiple countries and the Bank of England, they've done phenomenal work on that. Totally different subject. I mean, if you want to talk about that subject, it's a very, very technical discussion. We can get into a lot of details. Um, and when I told them what I had in mind, the editor told me, I don't think that's uh, that's an article. That sounds like a book. Would you like to write a book? And you, you know, you're 33 years old. You've been hustling, trying to get this blockchain thing going on in France, and Paris is not the most innovative uh, city in the world. I'd actually say it's not an innovative city, period. Um, so when something like this comes along your way, you, you, you jump at it. And I jumped at it, and I signed a very toxic degree uh, contract with the publishers, which was extremely time-constrained and based on, you need to write and publish and this and that. And so I... I, I, I pushed myself to a, 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 a limit that was, today when I think about it, is inconceivable. I did, writing a, a proper book on economics is like doing a PhD, right? Yeah. And a PhD, if you, even if you do like a protracted one, it's like, um, or a short one, sorry, it takes around three years. And I wrote a book which is essentially like a PhD thesis because my book is relatively academic i mean you, you've seen bits yeah. and parts of it i know you haven't read it even though i gave you I, a copy. I fell asleep yeah i know yeah i use it as a great cure for <laughs> insomnia as well um but I, I i did that in eight months so you can just and i had a full-time job at a startup I so i was time. working i was sleeping three or four hours a day for almost a year uh, and the way that it was done was very unhealthy and I still think that it's had psychological effects on me. The fact that I did it by myself was very bad because there was a lot of times that I just wanted to be able to explore a concept with someone else and there was no one else to do it with. Yeah, to discuss, to, to understand at least. Yeah, I mean, there was people who helped me down the line. I had like, you know, I had like Gary Kalman who was the technical editor of my book. And he was a legit blockchain guy he still is by the way and a very good economist at the LSE and at Cambridge so I had some kinds of inputs but it's not the same thing so desperate and so fatigued at the end of that year that I, I just said like just publish this fucking thing yeah I just wanted to get done. I just wanted to get it done and I told everyone you know like my family and my friends that yeah I'm writing a book and everything else so there was an expectation for the book to come out but between hustling with the job and doing this and everything else, at one point of time, I just said that I, I signed a deal with the devil. I should have done this one myself. 
which is what Mark Mark Esposito, you know, a yeah. common friend of ours, um, told me. He said, "Carrie, why don't you just self-publish? Why are you depending on these people?" But he's Mark Esposito, you know, he's Thinkers Fifty and World Economic Fellow uh, Fellow Forum and this and that. Like he's he's in a different league. Um, I was a kid, but who, I think it's a good insight for like anyone. No, one hundred percent. Like, if I was to yeah. publish a, a book tomorrow, uh, you yeah, can you know, be sure and certain that the, the 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 kind of conversation that I've had with the editors would be very different. We're heading towards the the end of conversation, and it's it's been wonderful and very interesting to see what do you regret, what the failures, and like, but also the lessons learned and so on. Today, like as Carrie, we might like what. What does inspire you on a daily basis? Like when you wake up, when you're doing all technology, what you're doing? technology. What does inspire you about technology? technology? Man, everything about technology, the way that it's created, the people who created the ecosystems that it could create around it. You know, the the fact that it is constantly bubbling and effervescent, and um, shows the best of human ingenuity and and learning and intention to a certain extent. I mean. My biggest regret about everything that I've done in my life is I knew when I was very young, and for multiple reasons, I don't want to get into it right now. I should have been a scientist. It, and I, 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 I fucked it up to some for some reason, uh, and I did everything else. But I have a sincere respect, almost like you know, reverence, you could say, for people who. Who are in the natural sciences, and all my heroes are scientists, from Richard Dawkins to even people who are literally, uh, literally in the um, literature world, like Christopher Hitchens and everything else. Anyone who who is a fan of the truth, for me, is someone who I can respect and look up to. And science is based on that. It's the search for truth. It is, as Richard Dawkins said, is the poetry of reality. Lovely phrase for defining yeah, science. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just I'm a fan of those people, and maybe I can't contribute to science and technology like they do, but I can follow them and I can ensure that I'm a scaffold to support them. And this is what I'm trying to do with my company, with Capgemini. I mean, I'm supposed to be nominated for a CTO position for at, uh, the Future of uh, Technology Division at uh, at Capgemini. The only reason I've been considered for it, and also the reason that I want to accept it is because this is my way to support the advancement of science and humanity to a certain extent. I don't believe in any god or anything like that. So this is the way that I want to do it. And because it's constantly changing and I have this brain that gets bored very fast, right? Like I have interest in a subject for a couple of weeks and I'll be like, ah, I want to get into something else. Science doesn't allow you to do that. Technology doesn't allow you to do that. And the more and more you learn about technology, not just from a specific technology um, in the way that it works, which is very important as well, but also from taking a step back and seeing how it's interconnected, gives you a, it gives you the view of a tapestry that is so intricate and so beautiful that every string that you pull is connected to each yeah. other. And um, you can't get bored. You can't get both. So I, I, I think I'm an amateur technologist and I will be for the rest of my life and I will carry on following it and supporting it in every way that I can. Um, and if there was a religion or a conviction that I would follow, it would be science and technology. So yeah, I'm, I'm living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about inspiring people, can you tell me who are the most influential people that 
you've had the chance to have around you? Around me? Oh, I mean, around, yeah, around you. I want to know who are who were the people who have been influential to you. Oh, I, I you know what? I'll I'll just start with uh, you know. In an orderly fashion, in that case, I'd say the first people who influenced me was definitely in the army. There was a couple of officers who I looked up to, and they kind of showed me a lot of understanding of what grit is. I mean, I grew up without a father, so there was a lot of things which I think a father should be able to teach to a son that I didn't have the privilege of learning. So you, that's probably one of the main reasons I went and joined the army because I needed that paternal influence in my life. And there were some officers and some seniors and some people that I worked with who showed me what it meant to 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 act like a man, like a good man, right? Um, then there was definitely Nick Sanders, who was a program director at uh, Grammatical Management, who selected my profile because my profile was so bizarre when I applied to Grenoble yeah. <clears throat> that they didn't know what to do with me. Like they had never got a candidature from some guy who was a marine engineer who then went and spent five years in the French Legion and just got a medal of valor for from Afghanistan. They didn't know what to do with it. This isn't the U.S. This is France, right? And France is still stuck in 1950 for God's sakes. I mean, they might, you know, Macron might be a very young-looking guy, but the mindset is ancient over here. Look at the apartment for God's sakes. You know, they still got wooden floors. Parquet. <laughs> Um, and then there was definitely Mark, who was my professor, and understood very quickly. He, he's, you know, he's very, he's very sharp that way, and told me, "I think you, 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 you got a good thing in in terms of what you want to do, and you should forward it out." And Mark has been very influential in my life, um, and we work together today. So he's he's moved from being my teacher to my friend to my whiteboard of ideas to my colleague to my mentor so it's, it's been a gradual progression and um, yeah even you to a certain extent I mean the fact that you know you Thank and I you. Yeah, I mean, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass I'm just <laughs> telling you we've had a symbiotic relationship I've helped you you've helped me uh, but it's because of the fact that we've always been you know doing stuff like that and even my boss at Michelin Sebastian Sebastian Spangenberger who took a risk on me. I was a 30-year-old intern. Oh. People don't do that, right? And he did that, and he's like, no, we're going to use you. We, I can I can make out what you want to do. People who are 30 don't go to do an intern at yeah, 30. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> But even imagine that you do, and who, in, yeah. in a company like Michelin, which is so traditional and very top-down. Yeah, everything. very conventional. Very, very, very hard to, 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 to see that. I've never seen anyone else do it, by the way. Um, yeah, there's been so many people along the way who have taken a risk on me. My ex-boss before I came to to, to uh, Capgemini, Guillaume Guillaume Buffet. Yeah. Uh, he he as well. They, they they they. There's so many people who took a risk on me because I was so unconventional. But at the same time, they said there's something here. We don't know what it is, but we're willing to give it a chance. And they had the. The tenacity and the the willingness to take the risk, and I hope that I uh, was able to live up to the expectations. And it's so beautiful to see your gratefulness and to see you able to remember all those names. And sure. uh, thank you very much, Carrie. Uh, I have one last question, and then we're heading to a, a game. Yeah. Before we end the the, the podcast. Yeah. Uh, what's your best tip 
for making the world a better place today. Take the risk for thinking for yourself. Take the risk for thinking for yourself. Do, do not accept the answers which are given by other people. Um, you do not have to be a contrarian by nature uh, or a renegade by default. You just need to be able to say that, okay, fine. I need to figure these answers out for myself for whatever reason. I need to be able to say, fuck it. Like I mentioned in the very beginning, you, know, you just say, fuck this. I don't want to, I don't want to accept this answer. And understand that courage is, uh, is a quantity and not a quality because every time you use up a little bit of courage, it makes you feel like the world owes something to you. And so you need heroes, you need inspiration all the time. It's a cyclic kind of a process. Yeah. So understand these things that don't accept things for what they are. Question stuff. Use every inspiration that you can repeatedly so that you learn and you get the courage in order to move forward. And, um, you know, if you can be humble about it, that's cool. But at the same time, I've always felt that modesty sometimes can masquerade as hypocrisy in sheep's clothing. So, yeah, I, just be a bit... Don't take things at face value. Figure out your own opinion about it. Have your own understanding about it. And evolve that understanding because life is about change. It is, absolutely. And that makes me think about the mantra of the assassins, uh, which I find personally very beautiful. Like, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with whatever they did, but the mantra says, uh, nothing is true, everything is permitted. We work in the dark to serve the light. Mm. We should think of those words and like try to apply them. Yeah, it sounds like a good tattoo. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So to end this podcast, we have a game we run every time. So I have in my hand uh, a game called Connects. Mm. Uh, it's basically uh, 50 cards. On each card, there's a question. Mm. Uh, and you, I'm going to ask you to pick uh, a card and uh, answer the question you get. Would you like to be famous in what way? <laughs> I, I would like to be successful. I think fame comes through being successful. And success comes through being good at what you do. Right? So I think it's a... I think I picked the perfect card, actually. Yeah, I think so. Because success comes from being good at what you do. And you be good at what you do by figuring out your own perspective about it. By putting in the hard work, by finding the necessary people around you, you need that cognitive diversity. You need people around you. If you think that you can do this by yourself, ugh, you better be comparing yourself to Elon Musk because I think he's the only guy who's <laughs> kind of like fits that description. I mean, he doesn't do it in a, in, a, in a perfect way. So I think I would like to be successful. If fame comes along with it, why not? But a lot of people who I read became famous after their death. So I'm, I'm totally comfortable with that. So in what way? It would definitely be with regards to science and technology. I hope I can have some kind of an impact, even if it's a small one. Um, and that way I would leave my, my little mark on this earth after I'm done. And it's all about impact I'm, and I'm sure you will do. Kari Vimaya, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been wonderful as always. Much obliged and thank you for the beer. <laughs> You're more than welcome. Thank you for all our, all our listeners. Uh, we hope you enjoyed and I will see you next week. This was Now I See Me Podcast. Thank you for following. Bye-bye. This podcast is powered by House of Ichigo, a company that's redefining the art of gathering. Now I See Me is hosted by me, Sabri Ben Radia, and produced by Ludovic Schneiderovich and Eleonore Balsam. And of course, 
their company's signature film. <laughs>